Where do you want to wander? I don't mind. I don't mind. So how long have you lived here? Yeah, I've lived I've lived here three years. I've lived in Highbury for more than 20 years. Uh -huh. um, what about you? Um, we've been down, well, we're just down the bottom of Elford Road. Uh, so we've been there for about, seems like a few years. But in fact, when I worked here the other day, it's eight. And then before that, we were living in my wife's parents' house over off uh, Lloyd Square. And then before that, we were down in De Beauvoir. So yeah, we're pretty much, I mean, she, she was born over in, well, she, it's the house she grew up in over in Lloyd Square. So she's been around this area all her life. I moved to London when I was 20, so. So tell me where you were before uh, London then. Um, well, I grew up in Wiltshire. In Wiltshire? Yeah. My parents were on a business down there. I grew up down there. Went away to school for a while, came back, hung around there for a while, formed a band when oh, I was really? at school, you know, that kind of petered out. And, and what, uh, what was the nature of your band? We aspired to be sort of crossed between Thin Lizzy and Def Leppard, who were just beginning at that point. What era are we talking about here? 1978. 1978? 79. Probably would have started the band in 79. You don't seem old enough to have been doing that. <laughs> Weirdly enough, my partner in crime, Nick, who I formed the band with, just phoned before I left. Um, he kind of stayed in the music business, formed another band, had a modicum of success, but got stymied by label shenanigans. Yeah. And uh, then started a merch business called CID. Oh, I know CID, yeah. So he owned CID. No way. And uh, We worked with them. And then he kind of sold CID because it was a question of big fish eating. The, he was a small fish. Yeah. So he sold out to one of them. And they made such a cock-up of running the business. He ended up kind of buying it back. And then sold a stake to this American entrepreneur called Joel Weinshanker or something. <laughs> who... One of these guys who makes all his money from licensing trademarks, I guess, you know, he started off licensing the rights to, to make action figures. Okay. And then moved into music. Anyway, he, we, we hook up, he's in another band these days, but just for fun. Although he'd like to kind of make it a bit more serious, but um, they were supporting uh, Steel Panther <laughs> the other day down in Brixton. So I caught up with him there. Yeah, Have you stayed connected to music yourself? Um, peripherally. I got kind of fed up playing kind of heavy rock and just, I don't know, just didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I ended up drifting into uh, a career in photography. And then somewhat ironically ended up shooting rock bands for the rock press for quite a few years. <laughs> sort of travelling about and didn't play very much. And then kind of took up playing again when I was... I don't know, 30 or something. And yeah, I've just been in various other bands ever since. You bought you play guitar? Yeah. yeah. And you know, there's that, that thing I was, was at a gig the other night, the Peter Green tribute concert over the Palladium. Okay. Because uh, my brother-in-law runs all Lloyd Webber's business. So he had passes and there was a whole row of seats empty at row four. 
uh, for VIPs and who hadn't turned up. So Mark, my brother-in-law, said, oh, well, we can go, you can go down and sit there if you want. I walked down there and there was a photographer there. Yeah. And, uh, and I went to say, excuse me, mate, can I just, and it's like, bloody hell, it's Ross Halford. <laughs> it's like, you know, great rock photographer yeah. who I know well from years ago. I hadn't seen him for 12 years or something. So that was nice. So we caught up with him. So there's a little sort of pang of nostalgia there. And then I thought, you know what, actually, no, I love doing it, but I'm not sorry that I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. Not least because there was a part of me that wanted to be the person I was photographing. Yeah, of course. That's really interesting. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I manage bands, but I've never been a musician. You know, I, yeah. I think that's a good, a good position to be in. It's, it does, no, I agree. It is a good position to be in, in the sense that I can't, I'm never going to sort of challenge their position. I'm never going to do what they do. Yeah. But it's still complex in the sense that I'm a really creative person. So how does that creativity normally manifest? I mean, well, are you visually client, creative? Yeah, or? with my clients, it's, it's that sort of stuff. Getting um, involved in an album design, covers and all sort yeah. of well, stage. I'm, uh, I'm a sounding board for the music as well. Yeah, well that's um, good because they need a. You need a kind of fresh pair of ears quite a lot of the time on these things. Yeah, totally. Because you get so stuck into it that you can't hear anything anymore because you've sort of gone snow blind. I think that's it a mixing be good, metaphors, yeah. but you know what I mean. I think the thing I've been thinking about at this sort of stage in my career is that it, I, I put a lot of myself into it like my, my sort of heart is in it with my clients work and that can be really hard for me um, that I sort of put a bit too much of myself in it if you know what I mean so I've been thinking about how do I sort of make a contribution but without feeling that it's like me <laughs> too much of me yeah it's weird that because i mean i've come across various managers over the years but um you know there are different structures aren't there and i think wasn't paul mcginnis effectively a fifth member of u2 with a straight 20 yeah. percent split yeah and that always seemed to be quite a brave way of doing it for the band or maybe maybe not but it's certainly well that's how it is with my artists it's just is it? But, uh, yeah. yeah, but I think there's something very seductive but also unrealistic about the idea that you're the fifth member of the band. Well, I think it's really important to resist that. Yeah, that no, I, yeah. I noticed when I was working with bands, you know, there's always that, it was like concentric circles of influence. Yeah. Um, and it was great to be invited in yeah. to one of those inner circles yeah but you had to never forget or lose sight of the fact that you were never going to be a member of the band that's right and the thing the reason i like being in bands and i think the reason why people find them so attractive is because they're like the total the closest knit family you've ever met yeah yeah but without actually being a family it's such a gang yeah it's, it's it's a complete gang well the manager's challenge is to sort of be part of that gang but without uh, investing too much emotionally because you will get at some point get burnt because you're not actually in the band. No, and I guess you also have to be able to step out and read them the riot act. That's the other thing, yeah, you've got to have some objectivity, some perspective. You know, you can't be so caught up in it. I think one of the really interesting things that a manager can do is say, 
I'm the kind of manager that follows my artist's creativity, right? I'm not going to say to them, this is the kind of record I think you should make. I say, okay, what have we got here? And then I say, you know, do what, what the muse, you know, tells you to do. But then I think the manager's job is to say, okay, this is, it's this kind of record that you've made. You know, the business around this record will be something like this to try and make it realistic. Yeah. So I think where a lot of artists go wrong is they assume that their sort of left field art record, which they think is the best work they've ever done, will be the thing that, you know, explodes them to, into a mass popularity. Yes, and it really it's usually won't. the opposite, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, like, how have it's you had to, to navigate the shift? How long have you been doing this? Quite a while. 20 some years now. Okay, so you've, you've had to kind of navigate that shift in artists earning money from record sales to artists earning virtually nothing from record sales and earning money from touring. Yeah. I mean, that, it's not totally true that artists don't earn anything from record sales. I think that's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a kind of industry myth that. Right. It, it's not terrible. Yeah. yeah. It's better than piracy, which was zero. Yes. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, uh, I mean, it's such an interesting time now because obviously no one can tour. Yeah. No one's going to be able to tour, I don't think, for quite a while. So it'll be really intriguing to see how the business, the live business, resets itself. Yeah. I'm sort of this slightly unpopular voice that's been saying for a while that artists and agents have basically been like pushing their value too high for the last few years and the consumer has suffered in high inflated ticket prices and actually you know it just the whole business just needs to be a bit smaller <laughs> I think um, you know that's the it's sort of it's like applying you know capital the idea of completely free growth um, you know pure capitalism to something like live music it just doesn't really work because you know the audience is Finite. Yeah, although it, it always see, amazed me that um, you know artists would carry on choosing to play the O2 instead of doing four nights at the Hammersmith Odeon or whatever it is. Yeah. And, pe and wh people. Why did you, wh wh well, not not because obviously the the financial logistics of that make perfect sense. You're going to make a ton more money. But yeah. what amazed me was that people would go and see them at the O2, which I thought was a right. kind of pointless experience. Right. Um, having been there twice, I swore never to go again. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. And particularly paying. And then you get this weird <clears throat> mechanism where if you've had to pay 150 or 175 quid for your ticket, it's got to be really bad an experience for you to admit to yourself that you just wasted the money. True. So the more you spent, the more you're determined to have a good time. And you <laughs> see this weird sort of behaviour where unrealistic people are going to have a good time whether it's actually good or not who did you see I saw I used to live when we were in uh, just off Lloyd Square one of our neighbors was a chap called Michael Wolf who is a legendary dad sort of graphic designer right ran a company called Wolf Olins who was very well yeah. very famous in that world yeah and Michael's uh, 80 something now <clears throat> but He's a very cool guy and I came home from work one day and he was standing in the road and he said, oh, how are you? I said, oh, I'm good. Yeah. 
said, what are you doing tonight? I went, uh, well, nothing really, why? He said, do you want to come and see Pink Floyd? <laughs> I was going, what? I'm not sure, they're still touring, Michael. <laughs> he went, no, 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 it's the, what's his name? The, you know, the, the charity one. Um, so he'd got, a, he'd got a spare ticket for uh, Roger Waters. Yeah. So I went down to see that. Um, and I was kind of shocked that how many people are in the, uh, the O2? 35,000, is it? No, no, it's more like um, somewhere between 15 and 18,000. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, that at any time, about 5,000 of those people seem to be on the move, talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. going to get a beer, going yeah. for a piss, yeah. paying absolutely no attention to what was going on on stage. Totally. Um, and then I had a friend who, whose company had a box at the back and they invited us down there to go and see Neil Young with Crazy Horse. Right. And uh, I mean, it's a terrible place to watch it from. It yes. was a terrible show. I love some things about Neil Young yeah. but that particular bit of his work you know he was on there playing a really shit guitar solo for about four, 14 minutes or oh, something Jesus. and you think shit you know I, I remember know going to see The Clash in 1978 when all this stuff was supposed to be kicked out and buried <laughs> And they're gone. He's still there. And I left halfway. I thought it was really tedious. I don't know if this is a true story, but I heard that Lindsay Buckingham eventually, for now, has finally sort of fully been kicked out of Fleetwood Mac. Yes. Because he insisted on having, you know, contractually, he had to have like three six-minute guitar solos in, in, you know, in the show kind of thing. Yeah. And people were finally like, nah. It's interesting that because the guitar players are the worst offenders because virtually no one will tolerate a bass solo or even a drum solo these days. <laughs> um, but guitarists seem to think that it's acceptable. Well, I've, I've often felt like um, <coughs> I've managed some solo artists and a real issue for solo artists is band members overplaying. Yeah. It's just such a problem because once you have them with you on the road, you've got this you've got sort of two things going on one it's like well, I'm paying them so they might as well play on all of the songs yeah and then you've got this other thing which is you know well oh, I don't want to make them not play that's really mean but how did you get into managing bands because that always seems like one of those things that you know people start doing when they're at school yeah it's quite interesting because there was a band I worked with quite closely in the back end of the 80s, 90, called Thunder, who were a sort of British rock band. Yeah. Who initially were managed by someone who was an old school friend. Right. And then as they grew in stature, his limitations as a manager suddenly became yeah. apparent. Yeah. Because he hadn't got the kind of experience that was required. Totally. And then you end up with a real dilemma between basically carrying on risking your career or sacking your mate. Did you get to the point of having a manager of, of yours? No, 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 we were just, no, we were never that significant. I did a job with them when they, they opened the Monsters of Rock in 90. Thunder? And I, yeah. And I was kind of working for EMI with them, yeah. spending the whole weekend with them. Um, and uh, so we went up the night before, did the sound check, 
empty field, you know, nice pictures. Um, and then on the day of the gig, we set off after breakfast straight into the most monumental traffic jam. And they're meant to be going on at midday. <clears throat> and then suddenly I'm, I'm ahead of them. And they're in the limo. And I see this police motorcycle convoy coming up the road on the outside. And then I, they go past and I see it's their car. And I'm thinking, shit, I'm supposed to be them. So I just whizzed out, tagged on the back. And um, anyway, we got motorcycle and convoy all the way there, got in. Awesome. And then later on, I asked there this tour manager called Roger Searle. Oh, yeah. And I asked him, I said, How the hell do you organize something like that? And he said, Well, that's what I do, you know. Doing a gig like this, you have the phone numbers of the police. Yeah. Um, and you make a call, and it happens. And I thought, That is so cool. <laughs> you know, it, it's somebody, just in, despite all the kind of rock and roll, everyone being very cool and nonchalant. Actually, there are people behind the scenes who just know how to do stuff like that. Totally, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an insane job being a tour manager, I think. You're sort of last to bed, first to wake. Yeah. And constantly, like, you know, artists are different, obviously, but they all seem to have certain things in common with each other. And one of them is, in a sense, I don't mean this in too critical a way, but in a sense they sort of give up responsibility for themselves quite a lot yeah and they sort of dedicate themselves to their art and putting on good shows and you yeah. know obviously there's a there is a bad version of that where it just becomes hedonistic and ridiculous but there's a good version of it too which is like really caring about the music and wanting to put on a good show and stuff it's quite easy life in a way though isn't it okay, i remember that from doing a little bit of touring it is with thunder it in a way that you just very quickly forget what day it is yeah. or where you are yeah. which is why they always had you know the city name in big letters across the top of the monitor yeah because you don't want to go hello sheffield or to manchester <laughs> you know, this is them all. and the, yeah it just everything was done for you you everything got up taken care of yeah got in the bus you were sort of fed and watered and hoteled and yeah it was odd yeah, well, we, we certainly have lent on really great tour managers over the years to, uh, to work with our acts. A guy called Colin Davis is, they're always Scottish as well. <laughs> Colin Davis from Dundee is, uh, did Keen for many years and then now he does Mumford and Sons. Yeah. And we really lean on him to just make all of the logistics so you, smooth. You, you were about to tell me before I interrupted you probably how you started off getting oh. into it. It's, uh, yeah, I was a friend of the band. We met at university. Okay. They had been a, a, a Keen had been a school band. Yeah. And they went to Tunbridge, uh, uh, you know, private school. Yeah. And uh, they'd been mates there. They were called the Browns, and then they were called the Lotus Eaters. And then um, uh, I was at uh, university doing classics at UCL. And literally the first day uh, of, of um, arriving there, I met this guy, Tim, who turned out to be, you know, an incredibly successful songwriter and band member of Keen. But um, it took a long time to get there. It was a good, solid five years of, like, gigging and writing. And Who did you learn your nowhere. tricks of the trade from? 
I think I was pretty open to the idea that I didn't know everything. So I didn't pretend to know everything, which meant that I learned quicker. Um, and that is definitely a piece of advice that I give to young managers now, is don't try and pretend that you know everything, because it's definitely going to catch you up. Yeah. And it doesn't help your artist, doesn't help you. If your artist asks you something you don't know the answer to, the very best thing you can do is say, I'm not sure, but I'll find out, yeah. you know, rather yeah. than like pretend that you know. I think also that, that that's the kind of behavior that endears you to people at the same time, because it makes you slightly vulnerable. It can do, yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of people, I mean, I think artists are often also looking for like strong reassurance. So it's, but I think, I agree. I think that kind of vulnerable strength is more powerful than the kind of like, yeah, I know what to do here, yeah, you know, yeah. which is just a bit of a load of rubbish. So that helped. But um, yeah, I don't know, just a lot of determination, I guess. <laughs> and I could so easily have been the Did person that you described that didn't make it, you know. But well, there were, you know, somehow I learned many are called and few are chosen in that business. Yeah, whichever, whatever your stroll yeah. within it. It's true. But uh, so did the classics degree bite the dust, or did you persist? <laughs> I finished it. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Finished it. Don't know really. Sure, why. it's been incredibly useful to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love the classics, but you know, yeah, not specifically useful. So what? So what was the turn that happened that got you? From music to photography were there any steps along the way or did you yeah go from well it's something other? i was interested in anyway i mean i'd always been keen on photography since i was a kid yeah and then uh, my father had a friend that he'd been at school with and then they'd gone both gone on to be engineers and then he'd gone on this friend of his tony had gone on to be quite a very successful documentary photographer through the 60s and 70s like 50 covers on the Telegraph magazine and wow. traveled all over the planet. He then... Have you done that sort of editorial stuff? Yeah, yeah. Enjoy um, that. Yeah, I mean, these days it doesn't really exist in the same way. So, you know, I've, I've also traveled and shot in about 50 something different countries, but these days all the magazine clients I used to have have virtually disappeared. Yeah. So it's changed, but... Uh, Anyway, Tony got, went back to his original passion, which was engineering in particular. He'd spent a lot of time in Africa and he developed an idea for a, a car that could be made and used in Africa, substantially made of plywood, like a speedboat. Okay. Um, and then he developed a prototype, brought it down to show my father, who'd done some suspension work for him. And... Uh, I said, well, can I come down and watch? I had a sort of part-time job in the wine trade. Went up to watch them testing it on Salisbury Plain and Tony gave me a bag full of cameras and said, well, he was filming it. He said, well, if you fancy yourself as a photographer, you know, fire away. Yeah. And I shot a couple of rolls of film. And he phoned me up a week and a half later and said, do you want a job? Uh, and I sort of, I became his kind of man Friday. I did everything traveled everywhere and then this whole project turned into a kind of five-hour documentary for Channel 4 about the history of transport around the world and we did this big we built three of these prototypes in Leicestershire and then drove them up to the Arctic Circle and then turned around drove back through Europe and across Africa and 
across the Sahara Desert and ended up in Kenya. Incredible. Um, and where I also, you know, on that trip is where I met my wife. Oh, really? So I have a lot to be thankful for meeting him. It's such um, an entrepreneur's thing to sort of spot some promise in someone young and just give them a job. I think it's a lovely thing to do. I yeah, mean, my wife is a film and TV producer. Right. And she started off with a kind of part-time job. First of all, she worked for a guy called Joe Boyd. Oh, yeah. He's a legendary music yeah. producer. Yeah. So yes. Joe Boyd did things like the Incredible String Band, Nick Drake, right. um, oh, yeah, turned, Drake. turned down go, Pink Floyd, yeah. managed did Roy Harper, various things like that. Yeah. Um, then she worked at the British Film Institute, which was run, and it had a production division in those days in Rathbone Place. And it was run by a guy called Colin McCabe, who'd been quite a significant character when he was a professor of English at Strathclyde and got into all sorts of difficulties but he was uh, <laughs> interesting. well he, he was rather controversial okay. um, and um, back to yours or back to uh, just take the long way around yeah by the stadium um, and anyway the, the, he ended up as head of production there they made art house films yeah so they made Derek Jarman's first movies okay. and things there uh, Andrew Cottings, various people like that. But the thing that um, he was very good at was giving young people who worked for him a chance. Yeah. To, you know, he'd just give them that leg up to just somewhere they were felt a bit uncomfortable with. It's like, oh, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. You'll be fine, yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of uh, ex-Colin alumni who are, I think, all owe their first steps in the industry to him just going, yeah, go on. That's brilliant. Yeah, so I think it's a really cool thing to do. I've never really had the opportunity to do it. So I don't really have anyone working for me. So yeah, That's an interesting one. I like to do that. I mean, I don't have many employees. I've got 10 that I've had, you know, various over the years. I'm very loyal to people, but it's only recently that I've started to realize that I'm sometimes not critical enough of them. I'm sort of afraid of that confrontation. Oh, yeah. And also the, another thing is that not everybody has that spirit that you must have had when he saw, you know, when Tony saw you or, you know, some people don't actually have that kind of proactivity about them. It doesn't mean that they're not valuable in some other way, but some people just kind of want to be told what to do. Yeah. And I've started to understand, you know, that. <laughs> I sort of assumed everyone would be like me, like give someone an opportunity, great. I think that's that's one of the great problems for the whole kind of work structure, isn't it? Is that you not only assume that everyone's like you, but you yeah. also tend to actively promote people who you think are like you. It's one of the sort of things that perpetuates the uh, the hierarchy of, of middle-aged, middle-class, privately educated white men, because they relate yeah. best to young, privately yeah. educated, yes. middle-class white young men. I think that's very true. Because they see a kind of reflection of themselves. Just with better hair. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yes, you're my man. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, a, a, a badge of pride for me is that I don't know what any of my uh, employees got for GCSEs or A-levels or degrees. <laughs> yeah. Apart from that I know that at least two of them didn't even do A-levels, I don't think. No, it's, yeah, overrated. Yeah. 
I've really been thinking about that a lot. My older boy is 13. I was just coming to that. I was yeah. going to ask you whether you were rattling around in that big house on your own. Yeah. My older boy's 13 and he's been doing some little <coughs> bits of uh, work for us because he wants to um, earn some money to buy a computer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, something <coughs> about learning starting to do some little bits of work when you're kind of that age you know nothing exploitative obviously but oh, no, i think it's great and then i think to myself why is it that there's this sort of cutoff moment where it's like right you're no longer a learner you're now a worker to me it should be more blended i think we should be able to yeah. learn our whole lives uh, yeah I but i guess you know prior to world war Two. You know, you left school and the next day you were an adult. Yeah. Working. That's true. It's true. But it's such an old idea. I mean, yeah. I think we could have moved on a bit by now. Things move on rather more slowly than we'd wish. Or, <laughs> you know. Do you have kids? Yeah. Yeah, I've got three. My eldest son uh, works in finance and lives in Dubai. Okay. But not forever. Um, youngest, the younger you, ones. Do you wish he'd come back? He will come back. It's only a temporary thing. Right. Um, back in a year or so, I think. Okay. Um, my younger son... Right now, I would find that so heartbreaking, I think, but... Well, you know, yeah. I guess they have to do what they've got to do, right? And even if they wanted to come back tomorrow, I don't think there's the option. Of course, yeah. My younger son does kind of digital marketing stuff, but he's very... It's always been on his own terms and left school, didn't go to uni, started working. Very, very organised. Um, very self-motivated and then we've got my daughter Hero who's at home Hero 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 <laughs> that's cool um, so she left uni last year so she's um, yeah she's locked down with us how's she finding that it's fine yeah, yeah. it's all pretty good yeah um, she's the kind of creative one sort of doing a bit of more of art illustration that kind of stuff right <clears throat> And, and you've got a 13-year-old? A 13-year-old and a 9-year-old. Okay. Noah and <coughs> Solomon. Solly. Yeah. So where do they go to school? Uh, Solly goes to Canterbury Primary School. Yeah, which is and where Hero went. Okay, cool. Um, and Noah went there too. Yeah. Noah now goes to Forest. Um, the one out northeast. That yeah, Walthamstow's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he seems to be digging that. Good. They, we just got a note from the headmaster today saying uh, they've sort of listened to the feedback and uh, going to stop homework from um, Monday. Oh. So like just have a kind of school day till four, but then nothing else. Okay. Which is very sensible. Yeah. That's kind of thing they can only do in schools with a degree of autonomy. Yeah, true. Hey, would you be up for, um, I've been doing a sort of series of photos outside our house. Yeah. Um, Good job I had a shave. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really been bothering too much. 